0: I'm just delighted to be here again today with Lucas Van Oss. and uh, Lucas has a deep interest, as as do I, in Wolfgang Smith, and so we thought we would do a few episodes on Wolfgang Smith. Now, Wolfgang Smith has written so many books that trying to tackle all of his ideas at once would just be impossible, so Lucas has an approach that he's going to come at today, and I might pop in with a few ideas later on, but I'm going to let Lucas get us started here.
1: Yeah, so we're going to go a bit biographical because I always like to get the sense of, uh, of people like I just told you of offline. So Wolfgang Smith was born in 1930 in Vienna. Um, I think it was a bit of a tough start for him from, from what I understand. He escaped the, the Nazis and a Russian, in, Russian invasion, and eventually he got to the U.S. on a, on a merchant vessel. And at the early age of 15, this guy gets into Cornell <laughs> and he does a triple major, philosophy, physics and mathematics, which is, it's really unheard of from what I understand. Um, and at a young age, he already was exposed to Whitehead's work and he was really captivated by it. It really, it really set him thinking and it was an indication for him that it was something very important that he was reading. And he was really trying to understand the universe and applying to Cornell. He, he wrote down in his application that he thought that physics contained the, the keys to the universe or physics are the keys to the universe. Um, that was his motivation to get started, let's say. So he gets introduced to, to universities. And after three years he graduates and he gets offered a, a fellowship in philosophy at, at Cornell.
0: So after and, three years, he's eighteen years old.
1: Yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah. Like this story, I, I heard it for the first time, and I was like, "Who is this guy? Why have I never heard of him?" Um, and thank you for whoever <laughs> got him into the internet, because it's just amazing to uh, to get someone with this level. Anyway, he gets this uh, this fellowship offered to him, and three weeks in, he's extremely disappointed because, as many people also in this little corner experience. Um, philosophy it can be very dark impersonal. Um, like Karen said on an earlier episode, I remember you saying most philosophers end up insane or <laughs> or something like. Um, it's usually not a very bright route. And Wolfgang he emphasizes that philosophy consists of etymologically consists of philos and sophia, which is a love of wisdom. And he didn't experience it there. So three weeks in, he goes to the head of the philosophy department. And he's like, um, I haven't touched any money. I'm quitting. I'm going to be a lumberjack in Oregon. Like, <laughs> who does that? I just think that's such a such a badass move. Um, and so he goes to Oregon. And his brother, he, uh, he learns about this. His brother at this time is at Purdue University. And he notifies the the physics department, if I'm not mistaken. And he's like, my brother's a little crazy, um, but he's very smart and he's very gifted. So can you please give him a chance? So if I'm correct, he got a assistant um, graduate job there. And eventually he went on, because I got different um, answers from him on different podcasts, so that was quite interesting. Um, but he did that two years master in, uh, in physics, and it was a more positive experience, because it gave him a foundation that, that proved to be uh, very important. Now, later on, he works as an uh, aerodynamicist at Bell's, what is it, Bell's Corporation, and um, he works on the reentry problem. This is something I don't understand, but it sounds very, very impressive. And he goes on to teach math at MIT, which is like also just, wow. Uh, UCLA and eventually Oregon. Now, I think a very important part of his story that is that um, already at a young age where he's at Cornell, like um, when he's doing his triple major, he's exposed to this little book and it's called Gitanjali. And it's It's Hinduistic poetry. And he reads that little book and he's basically set on fire. So he's like, there's something very special about this. And throughout his academic career, he gets this this incredible fascination for Indian culture, for the Vedic religion, for Hinduism. And eventually he takes a trip um, between his stretch at MIT and UCLA. He takes a trip of seven months to India, and he was like actually hoping to attain some higher spiritual levels himself. But very quickly, he realized that was not going to work out for him. But he did get in touch with um, some very special people. So when he just arrived, he got into his hotel and he received uh, a call from someone that he greatly admired, saying that he would be able to meet this person the next morning at eleven. So Wolfgang is really excited about this, but he doesn't tell anyone. And he goes out of his hotel and someone on the street talks to him. And he's like, you have good news, don't you? Something like this. I'm paraphrasing. He's like, yeah, what about it? He's like, something very good is going to happen to you at 11 tomorrow morning. And so he was really confused by this. He's like, how does this man know? And then the same man asks him a question like, um, what number um, am I holding in my hand? between zero and hundred and Wolfgang says 36 and it's 36. So this for him was an experience where he got convinced of, of higher spiritual powers, telepathy he calls it. And the man that he was confronted with is something that he would call a FAPIR in India and a FAPIR is basically someone that goes onto the yogic path, but stops before ascending to higher levels. And so, he or she gets this power, and this power can be manipulated as well. Um, so that was one of the initial experiences. And later on, he goes and visits sadhus, and sadhus are people that are definitely like higher in this spiritual path. And upon contacting them, he he feels this this great reverence for them. He feels a great a great admiration for these people and. He's noticing that they're really not in the body um, so he sees these people and they're basically in trance for for 20 hours a day they're really not there and he's starting to see that the paradigm he was gifted in in western science was not according with what he was seeing he's like these things they're, they're not explicable uh through the eyes of the physicist so Upon returning from India um, to the U.S., he brings back this this insight, this knowledge, and he basically starts to understand that that physics, in a way, is wrong if it's taken to be reality. Um, And he says that because in physics, reality is basically reduced to quantity. So everything that is real to him is measurable um not to him sorry but to the physicist so he had great trouble with this because of course there's there's quality there there is color there is music um and this you cannot quantify so he starts to uh to understand the world through a new paradigm which he gets in india but he also got it in platonism and this is what they call in Sanskrit, the Tripuvana. And he calls it a three worlds um, theory, I guess. And in Platonism, he says this is not explicitly stated, but he, he catches it from, from all the all the texts. And to him, it's clear that the Platonist had this understanding. And I'd like to actually share my screen to show what that would look like, if I can do that.
0: Sure.
1: There you go. Let me see. Yeah. Are you able to see the icon? So what we're seeing is basically a cosmic icon. This is a a visual image representing the way the people in the Vedic tradition understand the world. And in the Platonist tradition, he sees it as the same. So in the middle, you have a, a center. This represents a realm that is without time and space. And according to him, all being originates from here. So all reality comes from here. Now this is not to be mistaken with God. This is the, this is an image of the cosmos. So this is the aveternal plane, as he calls it. A-eternal is not eternal. A-eternal is another term. I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a Christian term actually it probably comes from the middle ages. And What you see between the cosmic icon and the outer line is what he calls the intermediary realm. This is with time, but not with space. And he asserts that the intermediary realm is basically what you go into when you dream, because what happens when you dream, you still have a conception of time, but you don't have a conception of space. At least the space you experience is practically false. And by virtue of just the existence of this intermediary realm, he says that Einsteinian relativistic physics is wrong because it deals with space-time and clearly to him reality is not just space-time just the existence of this for him is already a a big leap into another direction and then the outer circle is actually what we experience so this is space and time but importantly it's also quality so that means that you have green grass you have you have beautiful song, you have the quality that makes the world so rich. And precisely why he says physics is wrong is because physics doesn't even take the outer level as reality. It takes something even below that. So that is only quantity. So that's all fine when you're dealing with theories, but when you start to take your theory for reality, it can become very dangerous very quickly because basically... By denying the existence of a corporeal level, an intermediary level, and more importantly, an avaternal level, you don't understand where being comes from anymore. And you cannot admit quality. And I know you did a series, Karen, on Robert Pirsig, and his basic idea is as well that quality is not existent in our paradigm. And he talks about the Aristotelian paradigm of subject object metaphysics. So basically that the world, well, it's a, it's a map, but if you take it as reality, it states that the world consists of, of subjects and objects and it misses a quality aspect. And that's precisely what misses when you look at the world through a physical lens. So are you following up to this point?
0: I I am following. I, I, I would like to interject here because I think this is probably the appropriate time to do this. Um, so you said that that in the so let's go off let's go off this screen for a minute yep. so you, you said that um yep. physics is wrong is if it is taken to be reality, that um physics reduces everything to just quantity. Mm. and then um, in Wolfgang's view, Obviously, that can't be true because there is this intermediary realm where there's time only and not space. And then in the corporeal realm, where there is both time and space, there's also quality. So if you reduce everything to quantity, then there's some sort of disjunct between what physics sees as reality and what us normal people see as reality, right? So in Wolfgang's book, um, Ancient Wisdom and Modern Misconceptions, he does an essay on Arthur Eddington, who, the so the, a little bit of the backstory of Arthur Eddington is that when Einstein announced his theory of relativity, Eddington was one of the ones that went on that expedition to, to witness the. Um, oh my goodness, <sighs> my brain freeze. The the when the sun the. Um, when the sun gets blacked out. What do we call that? <laughs>
1: uh is it the it's not the equinox, is it? No, it's the oh, eclipse.
0: Um, eclipse. Okay.
1: Eclipse. That's the it. eclipse
0: of the sun, eclipse. because they thought that from that they could determine whether or not light bends the way that mm. Einstein said that it would. And indeed they found that it did. And so Eddington brought this back and then he promoted Einstein's ideas for much of the rest of his career. But Eddington was known in his own right for a number of findings in physics and he was a very brilliant guy. Wolfgang gives him credit where credit is due, but also kind of takes him apart where he feels he's wrong. but but in this art anyway in this article on Eddington, um, Eddington is making the argument that the physical laws, the, the laws of physics, are basically subjective. And because they're subjective, that allows them to be completely precise. Because when you look at objective reality, measurements can never be completely precise. Like in objective reality, the moon is X number of miles from earth, but we can never get a precise measurement of that because of trajectory and the, the n-body problem and all of those things. So the measurement can never be exactly precise, but we can get these constants to an app in in the physical laws. We can get constants to an absolute amazing precision, you know, dozens of, of decimal points out. So um, I'm just going to read this little part from his article about Eddington. He says, Certainly, the descriptions at which the physicist arrives are not wholly subjective. Yet, Eddington insists that the laws of physics, as distinguished from what he terms special facts, are wholly subjective. And that is precisely the reason why these laws can indeed be known with mathematical precision. The vaunted precision of physics, Eddington declares, derives, in fact, from its subjectivity. As Whitehead once put it, exactness is a fake. The so-called special facts on the other hand are objective to some extent, depending on two things, our procedure in obtaining that observational knowledge and what there is to observe. So let's say we're observing the moon. Now we have a procedure for determining the distance between us and the moon. And we have a procedure for determining, you know, that the moon might actually be there or not be there, right? So, so um, take for instance, the fact that the moon is so-and-so many miles distant from the earth. Although this finding presupposes evidently an observational procedure for measuring distance, it is not determined by that procedure alone. The aforesaid assertion concerning the moon has thus an objective content. What he's saying here is that it isn't just the observational procedure of measuring the distance from the earth that establishes that the moon is that far from the earth. The moon is in fact that far from the earth. So there is this difference between observational procedure, which depends on the subjectivity of the person doing the observational procedure, and the actual fact of the objective reality of the moon being where it is. These things on perception are very difficult to to comment on, but um, the reason I think this is important is that for talks all the time about the, the subjective and the objective. You mentioned earlier, the Aristotelian idea of the subject and the object but that completely leaves out the transjective connection between those two things, right? Absolutely. So objective reality cannot be precisely measured. We know that I've had a number of episodes on measurement and, and why precision is, is impossible. Um, but here's the thing, utopias can be precisely measured. This is why utopias are so attractive to people, because you can set up a utopia and you can make it seem exactly the way you want it to be. And you're not subject to the rules of actual objective reality in a utopia, because it's all whatever you want it to be. It's all in the mind. And lately, people have been talking a lot about signal and noise. Hmm. And the way I see it, this, this, um, this progressive desire to move towards utopias is this striving to capture just the signal and not capture the noise. Because the noise is part of the randomness that makes, that makes um, objective reality impossible to measure exactly. Right, there's a, there's a randomness there. There's a noise element to that that permits that permits something more that permits qualities to participate. It's wholeness. It. Yeah, it it.
1: It's the number seven, basically. I think.
0: Oh wow! Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> well, if you're talking about utopia, you're talking about something that's akin to perfection. So if you look at uh, the rise of the Nazis, they they tried to carve something perfect everything is orderly there is no like they're they were very um, geared toward geared against disgust let's say mm-hmm. so that that's that's really satanic if you understand the the number six and the number seven the number six is like it's a perfect number it doesn't have that extra extra one that makes it such a tricky you know <laughs> a tricky little thing because seven seven is like the not the, the one on top of the six is that extra little residue that makes something whole Um, and if you try to bend nature to your will, if you try to make the number six, your reality, you're just going to fail. And it's a, it's a nasty endeavor. So you can better embrace some of that noise because that is like you say, objective reality. So that's what I would say, Hmm. but (laughs) it's beyond my,
0: (laughs) well, no, I mean, I think that that's really interesting that, so that extra remainder is partly why, um, Partly why pi is has is an infinite number, right? Yeah, exactly. Because of that remainder. Because isn't pi twenty two divided by
1: seven? I think so.
0: I think because it's so. it's
1: three fourteen something. Yeah. I yeah. had kids in class back in the day. They were three point one
0: four one five nine blah 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 blah. There we go. <laughs> but I think it's twenty two divided by seven. So so both the twenty two has that extra one because 21 divided by seven would be a perfect three, right? But then the seven also has that extra one. So both on the top and the bottom, there's that extra one. Exactly. So I'm gonna just continue this out a little bit because I think this is, for me, this is a very important thing. Um, Continuing his inquiry into the nature of the physicist's net, Eddington distinguishes between the application of scientific instruments Okay, you have your instrumentation, you have your measurement instrument and the conceptual frame of reference in terms of which empirical data are interpreted. So you can have all the data you want, but it depends on your frame of reference as to how you interpret it. And the reason I think that's important is, I know that you haven't been following the whole Wolfram argument, but Stephen Wolfram has this idea that we live in a war, a universe that's almost completely computationally irreducible. But within our lived experience, there are slices of computational reducibility. And those slices of computational reducibility are what make it possible for us to understand the laws of physics, to understand mathematics, because we see we see this computational irreducibility all around us, and then something slots into place for us in this slice of computational reducibility that a a physicist could go, Oh, I see how that works. And then they come up with a formula that describes that thing that they're seeing. But the key is that it's what we're seeing because of the kind of entity that we are now Wolfram says, suppose you were an alien entity at another part of the universe, you would see a different slice of computational reducibility and you might have different physical laws for the universe, but that would not change the universe. It yes. just changes your your slice that you're seeing. Does that make sense?
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Okay, so... Um, so... That goes to this little video I want to share. Um, actually, I have two little videos. One is this, we might not get to this one, but there's this wonderful discussion that Wolfgang has with Richard Smith about JJ um, Gibson and his ecological theory of perception. But while I'm on Wolfram, I want to go to this piece right here. This is about two minutes. Now, what this is, is this is Stephen Wolfram talking to a guy about molecular computing. And Wolfram has his theory. He's trying to see if his theory is true. So he's speaking to people from many different fields to analyze whether his theory is correct. And the reason I think this piece is so important right here is that he's talking about you know how wolfgang says everything can't reduce to quantity but the physicists want to reduce everything down to the standard model the the 14 or 22 particles or however many different kinds of particles there supposedly are there's there's the quarks and within the quarks there's the up quark the down quark the charmed quark all of the, but theoretically those particles, all of the up quarks in the universe would be identical. All of the down quarks in the universe would be identical. All of the charm quarks in the universe would be identical, right? Yeah. This guy talking about molecular computing has a different idea.
2: James's observation is that the proof of uniqueness of an eme of an atom of existence, cannot be made in the context of the Ruliad alone, but requires regression to the hyper
0: Now, I'm going to stop right there. The Ruliad is his word for the universe that operates according to a certain set of rules. The hyper would be whatever is outside of that universe, okay? So, the proof of the existence of these minute particles, cannot be made from within the ruliad. I think that's the same argument that Gödel makes, that the completeness of a system, a system cannot be, it can either be complete or consistent within its own set, but to be both of them, you have to move outside the set for that. So in order to establish the in order to establish the existence of EEMS or the smallest particles, whatever they might be, you have to go outside the ruliad to the hyper ruliad.
2: Uh, okay, so that's the- just, just for some context, right? So EAMs have to, uh, they, they possess two properties. So the first is that they exist,
1: which is important. And the second is that they have UUIDs. Okay, the, they have to exist because if EAMs don't exist, I mean, they're the primordial building blocks of the Ruliad, so the EMS don't exist and the Rui Ad doesn't exist. But they also have to be unique because if they're not unique, you can't distinguish between them. And I would say, if you can't distinguish between the EMS, then there's no reason to say that there are multiple EMS and then you basically have a big crunch in the Ruliat and the whole thing will collapse. So you have to-
0: Did you catch what he said that the EMS have to have UUIDs? Oh, I- is that the
1: uniqueness, what he's talking about?
0: Yes. A- a UUID is a unique user identification. Okay. UUID. So, and when they use this word EAM, they're talking about the smallest particle in Wolfram's theory of how the universe operates, which I won't go into. It's not necessary, but just imagine that you're talking about a quark or something smaller than a quark. Go down smaller than a quark and imagine... Every one of these particles has to have a unique user ID.
2: They have both of them. You know, e, uh, e, I, I, e, I, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. The, okay. So, first point about the Ruliyad is the you know one of the key issues is um, you know the Ruliyad in its kind of in its rawest state uh, trees out everything. Okay. But but there are equivalences which make the Ruliad non-trivial. Okay, but those equivalences we have said are but that though those equivalences are being made by observers. I mean, most of the equivalencing is done at the observer level. Okay, but so now what you're saying is um, that If you want to know, I mean, the equivalencing of EAMs and the fact that they are not all equivalent, you're saying is something that is outside of the observer. The non-equivalence of EAMs, in other words, being able to tell there are EAMs that the observer can equivalence. The claim would be that going the other way that maintaining the Eames as inequivalent is something not within the power of the observer. That is an observer can equivalent, the claim would be Mm -hmm. an observer can equivalence eams.
1: But only because they're by default unique in the rule, yeah.
2: Right, can equivalence eams for their own purposes. Yes. As an observer, but an observer um, can't Establish the inequivalence of Eames. In other words, an observer can just say, "Look, you know, I believe that something definite is happening. Therefore, I'm conflating all these different things." Right, but, but okay. the ad can't even establish can't even establish the. That's correct. Of Eames okay, that. so let's let's look at the analogy to black holes.
0: Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um because i want to go back to the transcript here. What he's saying is the observer, because of our slice of computational reducibility, the observer can make all the Es equivalent, which is what the physicists do. But that's only because of the kind of observer that we are, but for reality to exist, the eems have to be inequivalent. They have to each have an identity.
1: Exactly. Can I quickly pull in Descartes in here? Please. Because I think it ties in well, yeah, and please. I should have mentioned it before, because basically Wolfgang says that a lot of what has happened is because of very bad philosophy. And Descartes, I mean, for Vegas as well, he's a giant, so I don't want to reduce him to what he got wrong. But his idea of bifurcation is dominant within physics. It's basically what physics is built upon. It's what allows physics to be here. And it separates res extense and res cogitans, which basically means things of the mind and things outside of the mind. And basically, it says that quality is inside of the mind. That's that's what physics operates on. So the layer one of physics, the philosophical layer, says that quality is within us. So the grass is not really green. And that really allows for um, what you say, computational reducibility, mm-hmm. because try measuring quality. I mean, <laughs> try to try to capture that. Like, of course, we are in awe of nature and music because there's no way for us to do that. So I think it ties in well with that. Um, so he also says that if he tries to explain this idea of bifurcation to a physicist, it's impossible. Like the physicists live this reality. Um, and takes it for reality, and that's basically the problem. There, yep.
0: Well, he goes back. He goes on to talk about this idea of green. Um, I'm not sure I can find it, and I'm not sure I can do it justice. But he's saying um, when a when a scientist runs light through a prism and discovers green coming out the other side. <laughs> Has he discovered green? Or is um, is green something that is just a part of that? You know, like they're, they're always having this argument, is math discovered or created? Has the physicist created green by running the light through the prism? Or has the physicist discovered green by running the light through the prism? Or is a physicist simply observing the way reality operates that when you run light through a prism, you get green? Because there's a lot of options there and which one of those perspectives you choose is going to determine the way that you understand reality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, so say Sir Roger Penrose even When you ask him the question about mathematics, even he would say that mathematics is there, it's real. And that's very difficult to understand from our paradigm. Well, Mm -hmm. maybe not ours, but like the materialistic paradigm. Because you could say, like, we of course we we make up math. I mean, it's not I can't touch it, I can't see it, I can't but these we're talking about perfect bodies. We're talking about things that that are already sound very platonic, you know, like they, you cannot find a perfect circle on earth. You can try. I mean, you can, you can carve one out, you can print it out. Um, but I grant you, it will not be perfect. And if you enter into the, the realm of mathematics, you're entering into something um, wholly different. And also the Platonists, they were so obsessed with with geometry for mm-hmm. this reason, because mm-hmm. Wolfgang also says that, that the Platonists, they used geometry and sacred geometry practices to enter into the avaternal realm. Um, that's mm-hmm. That sounds pretty mystical. I cannot tell you how you get there. <laughs> <laughs> it also says it takes a, a lifelong celibacy to get there. So uh, I don't think a lot of us will be able to do that. But that, that's just an interjection. I don't know how this applies to the green part, though. So you're talking about the prism?
0: Well, sure. So like- let, let, let's say... Um- so Wolfgang is always saying that when you that Descartes would would have the idea that the green is in your mind when you look at the green grass the green is just in your mind and we're just applying green onto that grass through the through the neurons firing in our brains we're we're seeing we're experiencing green um or the the consciousness studiers would say we're we're having a qualia effect of green in our minds right but wolfgang makes this point that that you're actually looking at grass and grass is actually green um but that that implies that there actually is a world outside of us that's there, whether we're thinking about it or not. Yes. The physicists used to always have this argument, is the moon there when you're not looking at it? Right?
1: He would say that that is um, nonsensical, that the moon wouldn't be there. And he didn't have the scientific evidence for it before, but I think you're going to pull up that clip about James Gibson and his theory of ecological perception. Um, well,
0: well, I can, but what I'm going to do right now is, um, is pull up. Um, I need to get. I need to get back to my screen here. Um, I'm going to pull up a quote that Eddington made on the moon. Now, um, Wolfgang accuses Eddington of of not being able to see this, but there is this actually cool quote that Eddington made on the moon. Can you see this page here? There is a doctrine well-known to philosophers. Are you looking at the same screen?
1: Yeah, sorry, I was not, yeah.
0: There is a doctrine well-known to philosophers that the moon ceases to exist when no one is looking at it. I will not discuss the doctrine since I have not the least idea what is the meaning of the word existence when used in this connection. At any rate, the science of astronomy has not been based on this spasmodic kind of moon. In the scientific world, which has to fulfill functions less vague than merely existing, there is a moon which appeared on the scene before the astronomer. It reflects sunlight when no one sees it. It has mass when no one is measuring the mass. It is distant 240,000 miles from the Earth when no one is surveying the distance. And it will eclipse the sun in 1999, even if the human race has succeeded in killing itself off before that date. So Eddington is making the point that the moon is there. Now you can quibble about the word existence, but, but there is a moon. And in the same way, I think that um, Wolfgang is making the point that the grass is green, whether you're looking at it or not. But, um, but yes, there is this beautiful um, video of him. You probably can't see this right now. So I need to stop sharing and go back and reshare my screen. So I get to the right screen. Now you can see Wolfgang. Can you see the screen with Wolfgang on it?
1: Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, my bad.
0: <laughs> You're nodding, but I can't see you. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So we're talking about Gibson, right?
0: Yeah,
3: he's talking about J.J. Gibson. Amazing. In life, I discovered that there was a cognitive psychologist at Cornell University. In fact, I was there as an undergraduate student when he was a young postdoctoral uh, professor mm-hmm. um, doing work. On a, a government grant to see to investigate how can you hear him? One actually perceives the so-called aiming point. Mm-hmm. This was at the beginning of the war, and mm-hmm. the government people wanted to know how to test prospective pilots mm-hmm. to see if they would be good at landing and playing on a deck of an aircraft. Carrier. And so, what this young a uh, cognitive psychologist named James Gibson. What James Gibson discovered very quickly is that actually the information that exists on the retina, the information in other words expressed in terms of retina images, does not suffice to land a plane on the deck of an aircraft. So he uh, discovered that the entire so called visual image theory of visual perception, which is standard, mm-hmm. is wrong headed. Now, uh, the amazing thing is that he wasn't fired and disappeared from view. He was not. He worked for the next 30 years doing incredibly brilliant experiments and finally came up with what he calls the ecological theory of visual perception. Ecological means that we perceive, what we perceive is not inside our head, but outside what we perceive is actually the environment, Mm -hmm. which is another name for what I call the corporeal world. Yes. And so he was able to develop a very cogent, well-tested theory of visual perception, according to which what we perceive is not in neurons or in some spooky minds floating over the neurons, <laughs> but what we perceive is actually the green grass and the solid table. Mm. Now, the amazing thing is that uh, he was not somehow catapulted out of the universities, mm-hmm. but they did the next best thing, Nobody knows about James Gibson. Mm. It it was a miracle from heaven that I somehow discovered because (laughs) Gibson supplied a necessary component for my interpretation of physics.
0: So I thought this was super interesting because um, I had seen this before I heard Verveke talking about J.J. Gibson. And Vervecki yeah. is really high on Gibson from the standpoint of affordances, and this whole issue of uh, is is when we see a cup, do we see the cup or do we see what the cup affords us? Exactly. Which would be another way of um, Jordan Peterson always talks about: when you see an object, you don't see the object; you see it. You see the tool that you're going to make of that object and then your body prepares itself like your hand prepares itself to hold the cup when you immediately when you see the cup your hand prepares itself so there's not even time to think it through oh that's a cup and i'm going to drink out of it yeah your body is already prepared for that right so that's gibson's theory of affordances but gibson also had this ecological theory of perception that when you look at something it's not just Well, and Sheldrake also talks about this, about there's no, inside your mind, there's no movie screen in there that these neurons are putting an image up on this movie screen. We're actually seeing what's outside of us. It's actually there. We're seeing it. Where so many of the physicists and the idealists and all these other people are just talking about all these particles are out there. And we just have, um, we have evolved in a way that we can make sense out of those particles and see them in a particular way but but wolfgang's making the argument that it's actually there that when you sit on a chair you're not sitting on a bunch of subjective particles but you're sitting on a chair
1: and it directly implies quality which is i think extremely important because it's it's all fun and games when you're playing these theories out in your head as a physicist but if it starts to encapsulate your worldview, it leads to some very dehumanizing ideas I would say because you take the quality out of the equation um I mean I can understand why so many people are atheists <laughs> or materialists because if if they ask the smartest people on the planet what reality is and they give them equations then there's really something wrong and I would be very sad if that was my worldview. Um, so I think it actually laid the groundwork for a lot of the, the nihilism that that characterizes some of the the modern age, let's say. So I think it's extremely important. It's also why I, this message resonates so much with me because I feel that this is something so important to share. Um, and Whitehead himself, he tried to convince physicists his entire life of this idea that that, that the, the bifurcation, like why, why that everything is basically not just in the mind, but the physicists, they just don't understand. So they're too deep into it. And that's very often what you see with people who are more schooled in the universities. They're so far programmed that the deep program is very, is very difficult, but it gives me hope because the normal person is much more uh, likely to understand these things. It's the same with uh, our last episode about Austrian economics. You tell this to a guy who's studied in university for five years, he won't understand it. Um, but if you just explain Austrian economics to a normal person, you realize, okay, this actually makes sense. Because I have these conversations all the time with people; they really get it. Talk about Keynesianism to people; they, they're very same. Same with phys- physics; basically, the equations they're very weird. But we all understand that the that the trees are green and the music is beautiful. Um, <laughs> so, I think this is such important work, which is why I want to talk to you. Wanted to talk to you about it. Um, and it's ultimately what led me to your channel. So I'm very grateful that you uh, that you got to speak with him, actually. And I was wondering, how did you even get into contact with him? Because I think you're one of the first people to, to have him on.
0: Well, I don't remember exactly how long ago it was when I first talked to him, maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that. Um, it happened because one of my viewers, and it might have been, I might have this wrong, so please, if it's not you, please... <laughs> don't be upset with me it might have been nate heil sent me an email and he said you know looking at all the stuff that you're doing in physics i think you might want to get in touch with this guy wolfgang smith and he gave me his name and i looked him up and he had all these books Mm -hmm. and i thought well that guy's never going to talk to me (laughs) who am i and how would i even get in touch with him but i uh I think I put something out on Twitter and I said, I would like to talk to Wolfgang Smith. Does anybody have contact information for him? And someone, I don't remember who, sent me his contact information and said, I think this will work. And so I got in touch with him directly. And he said, yes, I would. I'd be delighted to talk to you.
1: That's incredible. You're the seed. (laughs) You're the start of it.
0: But then I, I, uh, when I tried to have the conversation with him over Zoom, he couldn't quite understand how to get the Zoom downloaded onto his phone, and he couldn't understand how to make it work. And so he said, "You need to contact Richard because Richard runs my foundation, and I usually do these conversations through Richard, so Richard can dial it in." So then, Richard was a part of all our conversations because Richard was the one that could get him set up on the modern technology. Right. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was how I first got in touch with him.
1: And I have to thank you because you got, you got me to him as well through, I, I got there through Kurt theories of everything, Kurt uh-huh. Um and for the people listening, if you want to get deeper into his work and you don't want to read everything, there's about, seven hours of podcast with, with Kurt and it goes really deep. And Kurt himself said about the second one, that it was the most, one of the most intimate conversations he ever had. Um
0: Yeah. The second half of that thing with Kurt is just amazing. I mean, really, really, really good questions he asked. And because he, Kurt was actually staying there, he had yeah. some, um, some, Close communal time during meals and everything to actually help get relaxed, right? And for both of them to be relaxed, and then they could really dig deep into these things.
1: That's amazing. I yeah. was it in Oregon, or or did he go all the way to? I
0: don't know. Um, at the time that I first contacted Wolfgang, he was living in Southern California, so uh, I don't yeah. know where. Okay, okay. He might have moved, but yeah, I don't know where um Kurt went to meet with him
1: yeah well I think it's uh it's a nice moment to speak a bit about his religious ideas because Mm -hmm. thinking about these theories you can start to understand what what it would lead to in terms of a worldview. um and again on Kurt's channel you see him discuss this very thoroughly he spent a lot of time thinking about these questions and I really like his take on, on the Vedic religion as well, because I think there's very few people in this space who really understand it. And if you try to understand it from a Christian point of view, it's very difficult or a Western point of view. Um, so Wolfgang was raised Catholic when he was a, a young child. And he said that even though he was raised in this way due to the war and due to moving to America, he kind of lost a bit of touch with that. And like I said before, when he was in university doing his triple major, um he got into contact with uh with this little poetry book gitanjali and it's really set him on fire i actually read it recently it's uh it's quite beautiful it's a short short little book but it's uh i understand <laughs> i think i understand what why it did and what it did
0: well if you can send me the link i'll put it in the description
1: of the, the talks or
0: of of the book oh yeah sounds good yeah, yeah. The poetry book yeah
1: yeah sounds good and um Basically, this, this enabled him with India, like I said, and he went to India. And initially, like I said, he, he thought he would be able to actually participate to get into these, into these spiritual levels. But he realized that this was not the case for him. And one of the reasons, I think, why he could not embrace it is because he kept asking the question about what remains in the union with God. Because basically, in the Vedic tradition, the ultimate goal um, from what I understand, is is the ego immolation, is, is complete loss of the self, the the union with the divine and the the, the nirvanic option, as he calls it. And every time he asked anyone there what remains of the human, they would say, nothing, absolutely nothing, because that's the goal. Even the the clothes that they wear, the sadhus, the garu. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. The color is supposed to represent death, I think, or the ego emulation, I should say. So the the self does not remain. And coming back to the West, he realized that the Christian was kind of the polar opposite. So this comes into his critique of a lot of modern ideas of perennialism. And perennialism is basically the school of thought about religions that they all lead to the same union, all of, the same, all of these roads lead to the same end basically and he's basically saying that that's not true there's two different main paths uh the christic the christian and the vedic and the vedic is a union with god loss of the self and the christic is actually more of a relationship it's uh what is the what is the term again it is salvation Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and getting salvation from from Christ um, means a union, but it also means a relationship. So it's a, the self remains in a certain way. What that is exactly, I'm not gonna speculate about, but he's basically saying that with the coming of Christ, the second option was, was initiated. And he also said that for Western man, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible to walk the Vedic path. So he realized coming back to the West that this was not for him but he did have something that he could take back with him. And it is a deeper understanding of this tradition and a deep reverence for it. So if you ask him if any religion is better than the other, the Vedic or the Christian, he says, no, because they're different, but they're both from God. So he he talks about religion as a a religare, as binding back. So if it's a religion, if you acknowledge it it as a religion, it has to go back to God. And depending on what kind of Christian you are, you can have different, opinions about it, but I would just say that it's extremely difficult to understand this tradition through the Christian eyes. Um, And the same way goes for the other way around. So that's basically how he felt about it. And at the age of 40, he met his wife, Thea, who he always speaks about so lovingly. It's, It's very heartwarming when I hear him speak about his wife. He met him at the later stage at the university she was doing her PhD maybe and his wife was a Catholic same the way same as the way he was raised and she brought him back to his roots and it was funny because in the interview with Kurt they shared this that their that their wives brought them to Christianity <laughs> and I think this is something that happens more often where it's often the women that keep the faith strong that, that maintain the church that you know what I mean I think that it's often uh, such a strength, and so he got back to his roots. And sorry, did you want to interject?
0: Well, I, I have thoughts, but I don't need to interject.
1: You sure? Okay. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I my my main thought is that this idea of marriage, I think, is fundamental to everything, <clears throat> and not not just marriage of man and woman, but the the marriage of let's say the marriage of noise and signal or the marriage of Mm. accuracy and expression. And uh, I think one of the reasons that women help men come in contact with it, with the church or with the faith is that yes, men and women each have the masculine and feminine within them. And, Yes, men and women both have accuracy and expression as part of their kind of paradigm. But I do think that women in, you know, if you, if you had the two bell curves, the woman's bell curve would be a little bit, you know, they cross over, but the woman's bell curve would be a little bit further to the, towards the expression side. So women tend to be more open to the noise. Women tend to be more open to the the expressive side of the world, and men tend to be more focused on the accuracy side and more yeah. focused on the signal side, which is really good because that's what you know that helps keep the world running and all that. But, but you need to have both. You need I to love have the that noise and the signal coming together. And I and- think
1: it's uh perfection and wholeness. So, the masculine is the perfection, so it's the sun, and the wholeness is the moon, and the moon changes and the moon um conceals. And the moon has the number seven, like we spoke about before. So, yeah, that's beautiful. And
0: I hadn't heard that paradigm before, but that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: The moon and the sun.
0: Well, this idea of perfection and wholeness representing uh, yeah. the sun and the moon. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of feminists that would hate that word perfection.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, when when I to perfection
0: it. to the men, shall we? <laughs>
1: I I think wholeness is actually more beautiful. So I think that's always the way I try to try to (laughs) introduce it. Well,
0: so I, I, yeah, I think you could look at um, another one would probably be aim and um, environment, right? Mm. So perfection and wholeness would be aim and environment. So the masculine side is more intent on the aim and the feminine side is more intent on observing the, the whole environment, the whole, wholeness around. Um,
1: Which leaves, leaves room for the, for the outskirts as well. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's very important. I think that like you have the center and then you have the periphery and the feminine has the receptivity and the openness to, to welcome the receptivity in. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the side of, of reality the side of christ however you want to understand it symbolically that that lets in that that speaks to the people on the outskirts and that's so important so well i I also think
0: think isn't there something scary about letting in the the spiritual i mean if if i'm just looking at this from a completely traditional viewpoint man being the hero the warrior the protector um the builder all of those things then he would have a certain shield up about not letting in the strange about not not being open to the unknown because after all he has a goal to accomplish and so, for a man to be willing to let that in, he has to come to a place of being willing to be vulnerable. Mm. And it, for whatever reason, I think it's easier for women to be vulnerable, to to be willing to risk letting yeah. letting the strange in.
1: Yeah, I think there's a heightened level of compassion uh, in the feminine, generally speaking, and so there's a there's a higher openness to to that periphery. And I think it's actually beautiful that the idea is that over time, you integrate the opposite side as well. Mm-hmm. So I try my best to to integrate both femininity and masculinity mm-hmm. at the same time and make it a complete union. So I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about masculine and feminine. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's
0: what people misunderstand a lot. Exactly. That... that masculinity and femininity are are just frames for holding certain concepts or ideas or something that um and in order to be whole there has to be some of both in each person but but it can't be half 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 is never a good place to be i mean either in art or in business or anything else there has to be one side that's more than the other and so Mm. I have known couples that were completely successful where the wife was more masculine and the husband was more feminine in terms of these hierarchical ways of thinking and, yeah. um, and just the way that they took on the world it was p- completely successful, but that's because there was one of each.
1: Yeah, exactly. I have the same right? in my, uh, in my relationship, actually. <laughs> I have the more feminine side, which, uh, which I think is quite interesting because people are always like, uh, because it's as well with like building on the house, like working on the house, the neighbor would be like, Oh Lucas, you're going to do this. I'm like, no, (laughs) that's not for me. (laughs) Not very good at that. I'm more agreeable. And um, I love people. And my girlfriend really loves people. Um, But I think I have more of the feminine some way, but we try to both like also integrate more of the other side. Yeah. Uh, And we both actually have, um, she has a she has a moon on her shoulder. I have a sun on my shoulder because I'm more of the the moon type and I try to integrate more of the sun and she's the opposite side. Mm. Um, so when I spoke to you in our first conversation about my period that I was spiritually more drifting, that was really my moon, my moon time basically. Um and now I'm in a period where I'm trying to get back some of that that sun energy. Mm-hmm. So I'm back to 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 working out more in a different in a different way, um, and and eating a lot, you know, getting really strong and again, because before it was mostly just running in the dark, you know, and then a lot of meditations, um, and spiritual drifting, and a lot of human connection horizontally. Mm-hmm. So that's uh that's an interesting interesting way to tie that into that. But I wanted to say tying it back into into Wolfgang.
0: Okay, so he met his wife. That's where we were. Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
1: Sorry for drifting off, guys. Um, his conversion was, after that, largely influenced by uh, the works of St. Augustine, uh, The Confessions. And I was just enamored by by Wolfgang, so I just wanted to read all of the stuff. So I read The Confessions as well. I thought that was uh, it was very beautiful. It's basically the first autobiography uh, known to us. And it's a man who had deep troubles. So it's really, I think it's very inspiring nowadays as well, because it's someone that that really was not a good kid, you know, in many ways, not a good kid. And he turned out super well with the spiritual transformation. So it was very, it was very beautiful to read. And apparently this was one of the works that really convinced Wolfgang to go back. And the main thing again, was that he, he realized that this is his software. This is who he is. And, um, he really embraced his Catholicism after that. However, he wrote a whole book named Teilhardinism and the new religion, maybe. I'm not sure. But it was focused on this this figure named Teilhard de Chardin. It's a bit of a funny name. It's T-E-I-L-H-A-R-D. I I think it's a Frenchman. Mm -hmm. And he apparently was very influential in the Second Vatican Council. And he had some ideas that Wolfgang would describe as gnostic as almost satanic he thought he was um he was kind of a possessed person in many ways so he conceptualized i think he conceptualized heaven as more as like something futuristic you know sort of a utopic idea and he had other ideas that wolfgang thought were, were very uh, dangerous so this actually led him away from the mainstream above ground uh Catholicism. He was very skeptical of that. He saw them integrate. Also, uh, I must add that this thinker, he was really a big fan of, of evolution and, and science in general. And he had a quote, which was something like in the end, the only thing I believe in is, is evolution, but this is a quote from a quote. So don't quote me on this. Uh, <laughs> and basically this, this led Wolfgang to be very suspicious of of modern day churches and this is something that I really want to speak to you about and I would actually so, love to so speak let to me him.
0: just clarify there a little bit so Teilhard de Chardin was very um, supportive of the idea of evolution and and very persuasive and so he was able to persuade a lot of the church leadership not to fear the theory of evolution but to allow it to be kind of incorporated into a lot of the church teaching and Wolfgang was very suspicious of that approach and how influential he was with the church. And so Wolfgang wrote this book to oppose Chardin's teachings. Yeah. Um, Chardin's thought is still very influential in the Catholic church.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah.
0: Now now you're going to go on and talk about...
1: Yeah, because modern day churches for him are... Like he would, he said, I wouldn't set foot in, in many of these churches. And this turns into a bit of a pickle because like, I look at all these thinkers in the corner and I try to integrate them. So I try to mm-hmm. understand like what, what is real. And so you have Peugeot, you have Van der Klee, say, just, just go to church. And so I was going to church, Catholic church over here, just the closest one I could find. It's an international church. Um, but <laughs> I I kept being quite annoyed with the sermons, let's say. Um, Like it felt a bit social justice warrior type of sermons. And hearing Wolfgang now, I was like, oh wait, what is going on? Like, what do I do now? Because now I don't know. And it leads me to a bigger question. Is like, how picky should I be (laughs) basically? because he's like he's like i wouldn't set foot in a church like that but i have like an underground church which is, has been going on and and th- those beliefs are more orthodox orthodox and all these things um and so yeah it's something i struggle with and then he says in the same interview that he believes that eventually the church and its splinterings will go back into into one church church of the resurrection he calls it and this will be more centered around the mystical so the mystical allows for for everyone, regardless of your intellectual status or, or whatever it is. Um, people are on the same level here. Um, but I'm like, okay, but how does that look? And he's not able to describe that. And I actually wrote a uh, wrote read a book of his um, where you see the correspondence of him with a Catholic um, thinker, Malachi Martin. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but Malachi Martin is um, is is someone who wrote a lot of books in the in the Christian world, and he's the one that convinced Wolfgang of this idea. But in the in the letters, Wolfgang asked like, "I trust you understand how this is eventually going to play out." And I'm like, "No, just tell me," <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I don't know how I should how I should understand this. Um, and yeah, I was wondering, what you think about? All of these questions well, I mean it
0: is it is confusing isn't it I mean um yeah because I throughout my entire Christian life, I became a Christian when I was thirty two and throughout my entire Christian walk I've been part of one or another Protestant denomination <clears throat> well not denomination I've been part of one or another Protestant we wouldn't we, we I don't think we would even use the word Protestant actually but not Catholic not Orthodox but yeah what we would call um, Bible churches. Now, there is a downside to that, which means that there is no overarching authority other than God's word. And so you have to trust that whoever the pastor is of that Bible church, and one of the things that to me has always been very important in a church is that, The church does not have a head pastor who is the sole authority in the church, but that above the pastor, there is a board of elders and the board of elders actually have authority to speak into the life of the pastor. So if the pastor goes off the rails, this board of elders who is elected by the church body would speak into the life of the pastor. So the pastor is not the main authority. Um, In denominations, usually beyond the board of elders of the local church, there is the denomination, which has its hierarchy of leadership. Um, The thing that bothers me about most denominations is that they have a list of beliefs that you have to sign off on if you want to participate fully in the life of the church. Yep. Like if you wanted to be a Bible study leader, you'd have to sign off on this list of denominational imperatives. And usually in every denomination, there's something that sticks out and says, hmm, that's, I don't see that in the Bible.
1: Yeah. It seems it's like, biblical. it's just us. It's just us guys. Not, not the other guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And exactly.
1: that's difficult to reconcile.
0: So, um, so when, after I got into this little corner and I started listening to these guys like Jonathan Peugeot and and Bishop Barron and Paul Vanderclay and they they all seem to be concerned with whichever church hierarchy they're in. And, <clears throat> and in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, they have the liturgies and that's a very important part of the church as well. And that I totally get, I understand. I really wish that in our Bible churches, that there would be more corporate reading of the scriptures and more corporate praying together. That used to be more a part of it. When I was first a new believer, there would be a lot more reading the scriptures together, praying together during the service talking about God, what God was teaching us in the service. Nowadays, everything is very um, performative. The musicians get up and perform the music rather than simply leading the congregation in participation of the music. And the pastor gets up and preaches at you for 45 minutes and you're supposed to just be a passive receiver and there's no maybe there's even no reading of the scripture from up front so there's not even that performance much less the the church body being able to gather together and yeah and do pray together so so i i do have my questions about all that but i also really believe in the um individual believers relationship with Christ I just Mm -hmm. think that's to me that's got to be central I can't hand that off to somebody else as much as I'd like to I'd like to be able to just say oh I'm just a member of that and so I'll do everything they tell me and then everything will be good but that's just way too easy (laughs) I think each of us is responsible for maintaining our own relationship well that's the wrong way of putting it Because in the end, I think Christ is faithful to maintain the relationship with us because he says, I mean, even if you, um, even if you're not faithful, I'm faithful. So he's always holding on.
1: Um, Yeah, but it takes two wills. Yes. For salvation. Yes. But I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think you you see more of the wholeness of you, you take more of the noise in, like your, <laughs> I think that that's what we're what we're going toward, and I think that uh, your conversation with Teo, you spoke about um, churches as well, and it's like there's always the human, and I think that it is true that if we start treating the human as something like completely wrong, then we're also kind of missing the mark in a way. Because that is part of the noise, and it's part of the wholeness. It's part of reality. So yes, there is no perfect church. But I mean, at the end of the day, Peugeot did also switch. You know, it's also always what I think. Like he did make the yeah. switch. Yeah. He's the one. Like you go to church, you can't do church shopping, but it's kind of what he did as well. So um, that's always well, something the, that the I funny think about. thing
0: is, I went to a church just recently. Um, I've been telling my husband for a long time I just want to I just want to visit some other churches and see. I've been wanting to visit an Orthodox church when we were in chino, they took us on a tour of an Orthodox church down there and we saw the interior of the church and um, so after I came back, I wanted to check out an Orthodox church, but I couldn't really find one in the area that mm. Most of them meet at odd times, like 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon or something, which is right when we have our small group at home. So I can't do that. There is a big church that started up about 10 years ago here. And since starting up, it has sprung out. And now there are 10 churches around the world that sprang out of this local church. And I thought, well, I want to find out what that's about, just out of curiosity, The church is called Vive Mm -hmm. V I V E. And they've Mm -hmm. got some international locations as well. Not exactly. What's the
1: what's the denomination?
0: It's not a denomination. It's just a non-denominational church based on the Bible. Yeah. But um, and and the music is loud and they've got light show and everything. And so part of it is like the kind of thing that or ordinarily wouldn't appeal to me at all. But it was so filled with glory. I mean, they were just lots and lots of worship, real worship time, really uplifting Christ and glorifying Him, and um, lots of reading of the scripture. And in the midst of all this noise and
1: Yeah,
0: All of that, you know, there was this glory happening and that was very surprising to me. I expected it to be a very performative church with just everything coming at me, but really the whole congregation was participating in this move. And I would gladly go back there again, Even, even with the assault of all the lights and the loud music and everything, I would gladly go back there again just because of that experience of Really glorifying the Lord together yeah. rather than just sitting passively in the pews and listening to.
1: Yeah, I hear you. It's already a lot of participation. And I do think that the sacred can be found in most places. So I think that I spoke actually with my dad about this because um, he's also in this corner. I had a talk with him on my channel last week, which was very interesting because you never really get to talk to your dad for an hour, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Not like that. Um, and he just goes to the church that's closest to him. And he was like, um, you got to stop treating a church like it's something else. It's it's you as well. Like you're also the church. Mm-hmm. So you have a responsibility like for the community in there, uh, for what's for what's being done, for the participation. So I thought that's beautiful. It's, a, it's an insight. It's a perspective I take with me on my path. But I have been to Orthodox Church here. There's a Coptic one, actually. And so Coptic is uh, originally Egyptian, which mm-hmm. is pretty much where the first churches were were starting uh, a long time ago. and I actually have the, the Coptic cross because it ties into my my studies because um, I also studied a bit of, of those mm-hmm. early churches because you really go from the, the Egyptian culture, like you have the, the temples, like the the Egyptian hieroglyphs everywhere. and then you all of a sudden you have these churches and i really wanted to see it because well ties into what i study uh, and there's arabic there's original coptic which is a language i've been learning and arabic i've been trying to get on as well so they do arabic coptic and dutch uh, interchangeably those -hmm. three languages and it was an incredible experience of of just deep participation like you don't sit down Mm -hmm. like you're you're just standing up you're singing along with everything and uh, what, what, what I saw there as well is that all the children, they're, they're very much taking part in the ceremony. So they're actually in the front. They wear these, these little things. And, and I think their belief comes forth from their participation. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the reason that, that a lot of my siblings and, uh, and cousins have moved away from the church is because they relied on their beliefs and they didn't have the participation. So that, that is, again, something to take into account. Like if you want to raise, um, if you want to raise children and, and mm. you want to give them something strong to depend on in a relationship, then and participation can give that experience that can give you the belief that is stronger than the proposition. Because I think like many people have experienced that proposition is sometimes not able to withstand uh, universities or a scientific paradigm. So to everyone who's never been to an Orthodox church, I think it's quite an experience. Just are to see. Gonna,
0: what, are you going to go back?
1: I really do want to. I've been thinking about it recently, especially because I've been feeling this uh, this, this thing. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's God talking to me. It was the same with Wolfgang actually, because I, I watched the first episode with Kurt. I, I hadn't watched your stuff and at some point i got this pull and i like i, I was super busy with university I had a lot, lot of deadlines and i got this pull that that i had to understand his work so i started like reading some of his books listening to your conversations and there was just this burst and that that's i think god like for me it's communication where where i i'm like answered because i keep praying um please show me my part to play in this world Cause that's what I'm looking for. I'm a young person. So I'm trying to understand what I have to do. And I think this was a very important part of that journey. And I think me feeling this, uh, this motivation to go to that Coptic church again is, th- is the same. Although I'm not sure if I could actually be a part of it uh, for many different reasons, practicalities. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what eventually led me to you. And I think it's so special to hear that you were the first in the corner to talk to him. <laughs> Uh, and Kurt mentions you as well in the in the episode, I think. So um, so yeah, that's how I've kind of thus far taken Wolfgang's perspective um, and we keep uh, we keep going. Yeah.
0: Well, that was one of the things that really struck me about this vibe church is that we all stood for probably the first 45 minutes of yeah. service. <laughs> Which I had never experienced before and and mm-hmm. that's it's really it's really interesting how it changes your focus. Yeah right
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: yeah, so yeah, Wolfgang's religious ideas he's he's very um very, very traditional.
1: <laughs> yeah, but in a way I hadn't seen before, it's very interesting like he really takes the traditional because I think he read the book about the cosmology as well, like he understands the modern scientific ideas Yeah,
0: I have not read it, his book about Vedanta, he wrote the, me about either. Vedanta in the light of the Christian tradition but that book is like I don't know, $85 or something It's out. yeah, it's Canada. what I mean, I,
1: I've been trying to find it online I couldn't find yeah. it, and it's also very short so I feel that um, it's not worth that that money, but hopefully it becomes uh, more available
0: Yeah, um,
1: but but yeah, he, he did come back and he did have this ability to also show people the, the value of the other side of the, of the Vedic option and the same way, other way around. And he's basically espousing the opposite idea of the perennialists. It's really trying to make people aware that we are talking about opposites here. So people that say that the East has everything the West has and more, he says they're wrong and the same way, the other way around. And mostly I think what I take away from it is that it's very hard to walk the other path path. so um, this might be a path but yeah and he's very clear that you need according to him that you need a religion to to come to that union
0: well I mean more and more people are coming to that even Dawkins says that he sees the he he understands the need for religion oh really yeah I mean he it's not for him it's only for the little people that need a religion, (laughs) 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 you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you.
0: There's something about this idea that, you know, the hoi polloi need a religion. and Basically that'll keep them all in line, I guess, or keep them all lined up.
1: The opium of the masses. Keep keep
0: the world operating, but the the elite, the elite don't need a religion. So. No, no.
1: But I do think that there, there, there are exceptions of course, like it's, I have a lot of sympathy for John uh, and his work, John Pofake, Mm-hmm. because there are people that have really traumatic experiences in the church, and I'm, I'm glad that John is here to fulfill the role of offering those people a spiritual home, if you can call it that. And so I'm very sympathetic toward John, although he does in the meaning crisis very clearly state that we need to move beyond beyond religion. Um, that that part I have some some trouble with, but I really understand where he's coming from. Um, I think in many ways he's more Christ-like than a lot of people that that call themselves Christian. So that comes back to the participation aspect, the acting out of of the person or the symbol
0: well in so many of the, the the environments that i've been involved in as a believer we would all say religion is not the answer mm. so, i mean to me to hear this when i first got in this corner i was having a lot of discussions with people about why are we using this word religion because i was always taught and and i understand it from the word too that that we're not called to religion. We're called to relationship. So what's important is my relationship with Christ, my relationship with God, that a religion can be just traditions. It can be dead. Religions can be dead. I've been in a lot of dead churches. So church isn't just church. Isn't the answer. If it's going to be church, it has to be a church that's a body of believers who are the church, not a church building that with some religion attached to it, but a body yeah. of believers that make up the church. So that relationship is what's important. So by having a relationship with Christ, you've sort of already moved beyond religion, but they're using the word religion strictly to have this etymological meaning of tied or bound
2: Mm.
0: right so that you're tied or bound to this truth Mm. but if you look at it that way then perennialism simply cannot be correct because christ himself says i am the way and the word says no one comes to the father but through christ Mm. There is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved than the name of Christ. So Christianity, if you accept the word as being true, is already exclusive. It excludes any other way that doesn't see Christ as the only way. And that doesn't fit very well in, in our modern world. People don't like exclusivity. People want everybody to be able to include it from everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, the Vedic path, it is a union with God, um, but it's not through Christ, which makes it a different type of union. So I do, I do see definitely room for that. What I really struggle with myself is that Wolfgang he sees the the Christian and the Vedic as as the two paths basically, and he says that everything else is basically in between. That's quite an assertion to make. Um,
0: Everything else is in between. What is that? Yeah, mean? it's
1: like so. so Islam, Judaism. Mm-hmm. He says that that's more of a derivation from the Christian path. Um, so he sees the Christian path and the Vedic path as 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 paths to union with with God. Um,
0: and anything but, else is not a path to union with God. Is that what he's saying, or?
1: Yeah, not exactly because in his view. Um, and that's what I struggle with because I find it very hard. I mean, I know my, my, my relationship with, with Christ and, and God, and I know how to access it. And I know my, my way of, um, of speaking to God and, and feeling one, it works, but I don't want to discount all of Judaism or all of Islam or like I find it very very hard to do, because mm-hmm. I see such wisdom in those traditions as well, and there's a lot of different propositions, and there's there's way that that of course these clash. Um, but yeah, so it's it's more of a of a struggle with me because I mean I live in a country where there's a lot of a lot of people here that are um, that are Muslim, and mm-hmm. a lot of them I know and I respect them so much and I see so much more wisdom from them than I see mm-hmm. from my secular fellow countrymen. Mm-hmm. So I really get along like my barber, for example, and all the people that I see there, um, that they're, they're Muslim and I have such a deep reverence for them. And I'm sure that there's so much wisdom in there and participatory knowledge as well. And I, I don't believe that God is not there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I struggle with that notion myself. hmm but I understand it, like I really get it. Uh, but it's it's also why John calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, because he takes the Jewish criticism very well that Jesus would not be the Christ. Now, as a Christian, I cannot say that, uh, but I do struggle with, um, with this exclusion.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it would be natural to struggle with it because we live in a world in which exclusion is excluded. <laughs> we have excluded exclusion yeah yeah
1: it's very difficult
0: i i i mean part of the way that i see the world which is probably very simplistic is that that there is truth and that because there is such a thing as truth and there was truth before the tower of babel god had imparted his truth to his people before I mean in in the garden and then that truth was carried with them even through the flood that truth was carried and then the Tower of Babel divides the people because the languages are divided but they each carry the truth with them then they go off to their locations wherever they're located, and they are isolated communities with that piece of truth. And as happens with propositions, they they switch shift over time. Yeah. Maybe parts of them it, you, you keep part of it, you dispose of part of it. And in every culture, certain parts were kept, certain parts were disposed of. But when, when Christ comes. He is the truth. He brings back the fullness, the wholeness of the truth. So the wholeness of the truth resides in Christ. But there is still pieces of truth everywhere else in all the other religions, all the other perspectives of the world. So, of course, there's wisdom in all those religions. But Mm. the wholeness is in Christ. That's the way I see it.
1: Yeah, I understand the perspective. Yeah. And as a Christian, I, I I think it's true. But I just feel that I've been wrong so many times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like I just um I try to be as respectful and and open and understanding while I know that this is and my... aren't we
0: called to that to be respectful and open of and course, understanding of course, and accepting of regardless of whether a person cares. even even the people that you know you, you said that you feel like that that the Muslim community exhibits so much more wisdom than the secular community. Yeah. But you're you're also being accepting and loving of the secular community, right? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So I mean that's what we're called to. So yeah. that's what makes this time in our history so complicated.
1: Yeah. Because, splintered. Everything's splintered. Yeah.
0: And we feel splintered.
1: It is like the Tower of Babel. Actually.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we probably have to. Yeah, I know. Today, but um, I'm gonna go what, to bed What soon. did you want to do for part two? Or are I want to go, go into school now.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm. I have summer summer break, so reading a lot. Um, I wanted to dive into quantum physics, how Wolfgang solves the the problems we've had with quantum physics. Like we struggle so much with understanding quantum physics, integrating it into a worldview and basically through the current paradigm you cannot understand it, no one understands it but Wolfgang has a very brilliant way of, of making this very comprehensible and with the cosmic icon that we showed before mm-hmm. um, it'll make a lot of sense of that so that's going to be the main theme, theme for, for episode 2 I would say and we'll go off on a lot of <laughs> tangents I think Yeah, it's like today
0: so the quantum um, enigma, that sounds really good exactly,
1: it's a book and he's got a documentary as well both are excellent.
0: Uh, yeah, so we'll yeah. we'll pick that up next week then, and in the meantime, if you could send me the uh, link for that Gitanjali Gitanjali. Book of poems, yeah, and I will also add the the links for Kurt's talks and for my previous episodes with Wolfgang for people who want to learn more.
1: Amazing! Thank you again for and,
0: and also send me the link to your your um, YouTube channel because I want to see your talk with your dad.
1: Yeah, I had to talk with my brother as well. Actually. I think you'll uh, you'll like both because he's a he's a bit of a philosopher. He's in the corner. He actually hosted Paul van der Clyve when he was here oh. uh, in the Netherlands. So Paul knows uh-huh. him, and they've both been on Paul's channel before. So I think uh, I think some people will really enjoy that. So, so what, yeah,
0: what city do you live in?
1: I live in the Hague. So this is kind of like the political capital. Is- you have the ICC here.
0: We have a really good friend who is from the Netherlands and who lived here in California for a while. And then she was on a vacation in Greece and she met a guy from the Netherlands and they fell Mm. in love and got married. So she moved back to the Netherlands. So now she's lived there for like 20 years. So,
1: Well, wherever she is, she'll be close because this country is this big.
0: (laughs) I'll have to see where she lives. Maybe, maybe you you get into the estuary actually, because
1: we have an estuary group in the Netherlands. If you, uh, if she's interested in that.
0: I'm so jealous of that. We don't have an estuary group yet in the Bay Area.
1: I mean, it's a tiny one, so we don't have much to boast about. But uh,
0: (laughs) well, just being able to get together with people and talk about ideas like this would be so great.
1: Yeah, it is really something special. We have uh, so the last estuary meetings we've had is like three or four people, Uh uh, one of which is my brother. (laughs) Um, But it's been close by for me every time, and uh, it's very special because you're like you both have a lot of common ground Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really beautiful. So we're continuing that we're working on it. It's a bit of a struggle, but if anyone's in the Netherlands watching, um, you can contact me and uh, we can get you involved. So.
0: And I think eventually the key is going to be finding a way to, not dumbed down, but to simplify the ideas enough to where somebody coming in from outside could get a grasp of that shared background, so they could participate with you as well.
2: Yeah, right.
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You'd be That's good at that. At at this simplifying.
0: Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll,
1: have a, we'll have a go.
0: <laughs> because you 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 took when I looked at all these books of Wolfgang's, and I went back to it again. I got tied up on one page <coughs> Yeah. and pretty soon my mind is going every which direction just on one page and then you took all eight books or whatever and 40 hours of videos and decided <laughs> okay, here's the path through we're going to go this direction
1: i hope uh it was accessible but thank you
0: yes it yeah. was very much so thank you so
1: right. much lucas and amazing we'll i'm so anything. excited
2: yeah okay bye-bye thank you so much Karen. i'll see you soon